Jesse, I'm still not over how terrible that dude from last week was. What's the story this week? A love triangle ends in a multi-millionaire's death by overkill stabbing. But somehow, that's not even close to the most shocking part of this saga. From murder orphans to blatant incest to a decade-long affair with a rock legend, this story is bananas. I repeat, B-A-N-A-N-A-S. I'm Andy Cassette. And I'm Desi Prey. And this is Love Murder. Hi, Jesse. Welcome back, everyone, to Love Murder, the podcast where true crime meets human interest and where the villains are just normal people that go abnormally crazy due to lust and love. You can find more about Love Murder on Twitter and Instagram at Love Murder or by searching Love Murder Podcast on Facebook. Yeah, absolutely. Please come join us on social media. Andy does a crusher job on Instagram getting the (laughs) coolest pictures that really tell a full story. And our Facebook has been really growing lately. So thank you for joining us. And if you like this show, please, I'm about to make a bad joke, love or murder a five-star rating on that podcast app. Oh my god. <laughs> okay. I think that's out of my system, but seriously guys, thank you so much for your ratings and reviews. And um we know that like reviews take a while to write, so even if you want to just tap that five stars, we'd be so appreciative. Yeah, I had someone DM me this week to ask how to write a review, so don't be shy. If you need a little bit of help, it's no big deal. Yeah, we're so 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 happy to help you help us. <laughs> <laughs> For real. (laughs) All right, Andy. Okay, so guys, this story is so wild, and I found it completely by accident. Um, I couldn't sleep one night, and I was just going through my Kindle store, and they suggested a Kindle Unlimited book called Nobody's Perfect by Ron Smith. So I clicked on it because Kindle Unlimited is free. So I was like, if I can't sleep anyway, I might as well read a free book. And it turns out it was a true crime story that was – Within like the first 10 pages, I was like, oh, we're covering this. This is amazing. So without further ado, I think we should jump right in. Let's do it. On June 30th, 1964, we're going back to the swinging 60s, kids. (laughs) An old man sat out on his balcony, taking in the soft breeze of the Atlantic Ocean. It was 1.15 in the morning, and though the weather was comfortable and the air fragrant in Key Biscayne, Florida, the man was troubled. Despite the loving presence of his year-old boxer, Rocky, at his feet, the man's thoughts traveled to his second wife, her lover, and the mess he found himself in. The humiliation of the flagrant affair had driven him out of his own home, a stately mansion in Houston, Texas, into this small condo just outside of Miami, Florida. The man was preparing for a costly divorce and the legal fight of his life. Over a period of 50 years, he had built a financial empire that included multiple banks and personal loan corporations. Less than a month ago, he turned 69 years old. He was living in self-imposed exile, separated from his children as he considered his next steps. He sighed deeply thinking about his children. He cared greatly for them, and they were the only reason he was entertaining this hellacious visit from their mother and soon-to-be ex. 
The children would be heading off to a boarding school in Switzerland when this visit came to an end. He had mixed feelings about this. On one hand, he hated his children being so far from him and being thrown into yet another new setting only years after surviving unimaginable tragedy. Yet, he was glad they would be spared their mother's truly heinous carrying on and the protracted legal battle that was sure to come. He had been waiting up to see if his wife would make an appearance at his condo, but it appeared she was off with her lover or perhaps suffering one of her famous migraine headaches and holed up at a luxury hotel a few blocks away from his apartment. She's a real peach, this one. Approaching 1.30, he took a final swig of his nightcap, let his faithful pooch in, and began to undress for bed. He always slept nude, save for an undershirt, and tonight was no different. He had just turned out the light when he heard his apartment door open. He listened for the voice of his hateful wife, or even his children. God knows she kept them up at strange hours of the night. But none came. Only the soft click of the door closing behind a mystery guest. Puzzled and a little cautious, he froze in his darkened bedroom and then heard a man's voice speaking softly to Rocky in the living room. What the hell, he thought, and threw open his bedroom door. When his eyes focused, they came to rest on a familiar and despised subject. Oh, it's you, he said with disdain. What are you doing here this time of the night? As the intruder advanced on him, he suddenly realized why he was there and what kind of danger this meant. Embarrassed at his own nakedness and in fear for his life, he shouted loudly, praying his neighbors could hear, Don't! Don't you dare do this to me! As he tripped over a low coffee table, the dog began to bark madly. The younger man raised a large glass bottle, wielding it like a club, and took it down upon the man's skull. When the old man's body slumped to the floor, the younger one took out a knife to finish the job. Just like that, multimillionaire business impresario Jacques Mosler was killed, and the ensuing investigation and trial would reveal the seamy underbelly of a Houston socialite's love life, incest, adultery, wanton lust, and an unquenchable thirst for sex and debauchery. That was very well described. (laughs) I could really see that whole thing happening. I really wanted to give you guys like an investigation discovery moment yeah. there with the reenactment. No, it was it, that was gold. That was <laughs> okay, <great>. ear gold. <laughs> so who is our poor hapless victim? Jacques Mosler is an incredibly successful Jewish immigrant who was born Jacques Muscovici in Romania in 1896. His family immigrated to the States to avoid persecution in 1900 when Jacques was only four. The family landed in Buffalo, New York, but his parents split up when he was 12, and his mother, Sophie, took the three children to Chicago. It was there that a young and enterprising Jacques dropped out of school to help his mother make ends meet. He initially sold candy and newspapers on the street corner, but quickly became intrigued by a street gambling operation, a daily game of playing the numbers. In Chicago, Big Jim Calissimo ran the gambling and prostitution rackets, and a newsboy operating on a prime street corner could only have worked there with the mob's blessing. Hmm. It did not take the sharp newsboy long to understand the street math behind the numbers game. Each night, he turned the cash over to Calissimo's bag men, who then ran the money and the tickets to some clandestine location where the game cards would be tabulated. Inevitably, his customers returned to buy more tickets, even if they had to borrow the funds to do so. 
To accommodate his customers, Jacques began to carry the vig or the juice on small loans that he could carry from his small working capital. He was soon making more money as a street-level financier than as a newsboy. He was learning how to sell money, and in just a few years, he would take the concept of personal loans to staggering heights. So he was a clever little monkey. Yeah. It was around this time in 1908 that the world changed when Henry Ford mastered the concept of mass production and the Model T began to roll off the assembly line. At less than $1,000, the Model T was priced for the working class. However, while the newer generation of mass-produced vehicles were now within the reach of millions of more drivers, very few of those buyers could walk into a dealer's showroom and pay cash in full for them. A source of financing was completely necessary, but Ford Motor Company did not offer financing until the 1920s. Crazy. Apparently, yeah, Henry Ford believed it was morally irresponsible to sell cars on credit to people who could not afford them. Whoa. I know. I was like, is that a captain of industry with a moral compass? <laughs> he he didn't think it was right to charge people interest. Of course, yeah. Isn't that wild? So thus the door was wide open for third-party financiers who usually borrowed money from banks and marked up interest rates that they charged to car buyers. One of these early entrepreneurial financiers was young Jacques. There are no reliable records of Jacques' earliest jobs in the automobile business or precisely when he changed his name to Mosler from Moscovici. But by 1915, when he was 19, Jacques was working as a loan manager for a car dealership in New Orleans. Some observers believe that the initial capital for the loans was provided by Jack's mob friends in Chicago, who may have sponsored his move to the South. In 1917, he signed up for the draft for World War I. The U.S. Army assigned Jacques, who also now went by Jack, so I'm going to be using like Jacques and Jack pretty interchangeably, to its Student Army Training Corps, a precursor to the ROTC program. His company was never deployed into battle during World War I, making it unlikely that Private Jack ever left New Orleans. But like all members of the CATC, he was awarded full veteran status and became a naturalized citizen of the United States in 1924. A second significant event happened in 1917 when Jack was 21. He married a 17-year-old local girl named Evelyn May Kaiser, a petite blonde Catholic. During this time, Jacques' business acumen only sharpened and his outlook brightened. As people defaulted on loans and cars came to be repossessed, Mosler was imaginative enough to see them as an untapped revenue source. He became one of the very first car rental entrepreneurs in the South. Oh my God. Isn't that so smart? Yeah. Yeah. By 1935, Jacques had started his own independent loan business called Mosler Acceptance Corporation and had offices in New Orleans, Dallas, and Houston. He and Evelyn had also had four daughters between 1930 and 1935. The firstborn was named Jacqueline after her father, and then three other girls, that's so many daughters, Bonnie Mae, Marilyn Jean, and Evelyn Gale followed in quick succession. Yeah, that's so many daughters. That's four daughters in five years. Yeah. (laughs) Though his star and fortune were rapidly rising, so were his legal bills and protection costs. Repoing vehicles and taking people to court for unpaid loans is a very nasty business. 
And Jacques was forced to not only hire a battalion of lawyers, but also some pretty big and bad guys with guns to both repo his property and protect him from disgruntled former clients. By the 1950s, the majority of Mossler's credit operations operated under two names, Mossler Acceptance Corps and Allen Parker Auto Finance Company, which was based in Miami. Marketing their services to a network of auto dealers across the United States, Mossler's firms held the notes on tens of thousands of secured auto loans. By the time of his death in 1964, Jacques' financial entities were the single largest consumer credit source in the United States. And his fortune was estimated at over $33 million. That's $274 million in today's money. Whoa. Yeah, he is rich as fuck. So, of course, you don't make money like that by making friends. And Mossler was the target of hundreds, if not thousands, of lawsuits. One such that claimed he was personally brutal, inhumane, ruthless, indecent, and cold-blooded. Jacques made one more friend and one more enemy when he met a beautiful young blonde named Candace Weatherby Johnson and left his wife of 30 years for her in 1947. Candace, or Candy to her friends, was the light and then the torment of his life. Much younger than himself, Candace was widely considered a trophy wife. Later on, he would ask himself, what contest in hell had he won that she was the trophy? Uh (laughs) Uh-oh. That, I can't take credit for that line. That's all Ron Smith from the book, and I thought it was hilarious. (laughs) What, does she also go by Candy? Yeah, so her full name is Candace, but she goes by Candy as well. Okay. So let's talk about this trophy wife from hell. She is going to be the enigmatic heroine or villainess of this story, depending on how you look at it. Love. She is something else. Candace Grace Weatherby was born on February 18, 1920, in the teeny little town of Buchanan, Georgia, population 491. Whoa. That's small. That's smaller than where I grew up. Yeah. (laughs) For most of her adult life, she would falsely claim that her birth certificate was issued with an error, and she was actually born in 1927. That was not true. Stop. Yeah, she lied for like she lied, literally perjured herself at at a court hearing once, saying like, "No, I'm absolutely born in 1927." <laughs> oh my god! So she was the fifth of nine living children, and her mother and youngest sibling were both tragically killed during childbirth Oof. in 1932 when Candace was 12. Her mother Lizzie's untimely passing at the age of only 38 sent the Weatherby family into a spiral of unfortunate events. Her father had a nervous breakdown, left the kids with his in-laws, and abandoned the family for good. Which is so sad, but it was made even worse because he only moved like two towns over and he started a new family with a new woman and never saw his kids again. Sounds right though. Come on. Dumps the kids with the in-laws and is like, they're yours. Yep, they're yours to raise now. Good luck. That's so So traumatizing for the kids. Oh, the kids were completely traumatized. Their mother died unexpectedly. Then their father just hucked them away and started over. Yeah, not okay. Not okay. So Candy's grandparents had already raised six kids on their own, and they were exhausted and overwhelmed with their new nine charges. In the depths of poverty and abandonment, little Candace dreamed of life outside of Tiny Buchanan. She devoured tabloid and fashion magazines and swore that one day she would also be famous. Her route to fame was a long and winding path, but she did get there. (laughs) 
When she was only 17, her grandfather forced her to drop out of the 11th grade and marry a man of his choosing. Oof. Yeah, so she didn't dislike this guy. It was this guy, Norman Johnson. He was 11 years older than her. Her grandfather was a minister, and I think, honestly, she was the fifth of nine kids. I think that they were just exhausted, and he was like, you know, she'll be just happy being a wife, and she's out of my house, and I don't have to feed her anymore almost, yeah. you know? Ugh. The newlyweds moved to Anniston, Alabama, and it didn't take long for two things to happen. One, for Candace to become pregnant and give birth to Norman Jr. in 1940. And two, <laughs> such a Norman 1940s Jr. name. Yeah. Norm Jr. <laughs> little Norm Jr. And two, she began to become frustrated with Norman's lack of prospects and meager salary of $1,300 a year. So even adjusted for inflation, that's only about $24,000 a year. So. Yeah. It's just, you know, minimum not that wage. Great. It is. It's minimum wage. And yeah. she definitely had very lofty aspirations for herself. So that just wasn't going to cut it with her. Yeah. Um, diversions such as movies or restaurant meals were few and far in between. So looking for a social outlet, Candace volunteered as a hostess for the USO when World War II began. And it was in that role that a chance meeting would change her life forever. It was in 1942 at Fort Benning in Alabama that Candace met the country's most eligible bachelor, Winthrop Rockefeller, the grandson. Oh, yeah. It's that Rockefeller, the grandson of John D. Rockefeller, the oil tycoon and person considered to be the wealthiest individual ever in American history. Like, based on the times, he blew, like, Bezos out of the water still. Whoa. Mm-hmm. So yeah, you can imagine. Plus, he's a good-looking guy. Like, wait till I send you these photos of him. He's cute. Like, really? I mean, whole package. Like, he's got some swagger. There's this like World War II picture of him in his uniform, and he's got like a little twisty mustache. And I was like, you know, I'm not usually into the mustache look, but I would ride that ride. Rockefeller enlisted in the U.S. Army in January 1941, almost a full year before America's entry into World War II, and his enlistment received the kind of coverage that would be seen today if, like, Zac Efron or a major other athlete decided to abandon their career and join the military, you know? So it was huge news everywhere. The female volunteers in Anniston, Alabama, were very closely chaperoned, but when Rockefeller spent enough time talking and dancing to the shapely Candace Johnson to spark an affair, Candace's marriage to Norman was in its death throes, whether he knew it or not. <laughs> <laughs> Poor Norman. Poor he Norm. didn't get a chance with Candace. Nope. Nope. And she jumped at the opportunity to get to know the handsome, extremely wealthy young man. Soon, she was leaving little Norman with relatives to rendezvous with the heir. When she couldn't escape Aniston, the millionaire marksman would drive 90 minutes each way to take a hotel room for as long as Candace could sneak away. By the spring of 1943, Candace was pregnant. While still married with Norm? While still married to Norm. Scandalous. Yep. In January of 1944, Wynne Rockefeller was promoted to major and sent to the Pacific. In Okinawa in 1945, he was wounded during a kamikaze attack, suffering burns on his face and arms. He was awarded the Bronze Star and Purple Heart before being discharged as Lieutenant Colonel in 1945. Meanwhile... 
little Candace Rita Johnson was born in December 17th, 1943. Yep, Candy named her love child daughter after herself. Wow. And does <laughs> anyone know that it's... No. So she was given the Johnson surname, and it seems like little Rita was blonde, just like Norman Sr. was, and Junior, and Candace herself. They were all blonde. Wait, her name's um, little Rita Candy... Well, I just said little because it's like there's big Candace and then there's little Candace. So her name was Candace Rita Johnson is the baby. Got it. Okay, cool. But she's going to go by Rita. Okay. That makes it a lot easier. Same same name as her mother. So (laughs) she could have just named her Rita. (laughs) Oh, God. So shortly after the birth, Norman became ill and lost his job and Candace left him for good. I know, way to kick a guy while he's down. I don't think he ever knew that Rita wasn't his, but he might have. I mean, she's she's kind of vindictive. You'll see it later. So she might have told him on the way out, you know? Yeah, just like literally while he was on the ground. (laughs) Literally kicked him. And by the way. Uh (laughs) That's like a real Sharon move. Remember Sharon in the bed hopping Oh, Black yeah. Widow did that. Yeah. She's burned into my She's skull. right. Uh, Candace is like right up there. I think Candace is going to be the new top of our lady iceberg or I would say top of our lady Sunday. She's like the cherry because she is. She beats Marjorie. Wait till you hear the story. We got to just keep topping it off, you know? Yeah. We just got to keep, keep raising the bar. <laughs> um, so later she would say, Norman was a fine man, but he was much older than me and we really had nothing in common. Uh, no, he does not. She just, he, is this because of her made up birthday? <laughs> yeah, I think it's because of her made up birthday. Like 11 <laughs> years isn't that bad. <laughs> but 18 years, man, that is a difference. Oh, wow. <laughs> the Wynn Rockefeller affair was indicative of a lifelong pattern in which Candace would not hesitate to abandon integrity if a more attractive situation presented itself. So little is known about Candace's life between 1943 and 1947, though she claimed to old friends in Georgia that she had been discovered in Hollywood and then modeled in New York City. Oh. It seems extremely unlikely that she was a model and a straight up lie that she was discovered in Hollywood. I don't think she was ever in Hollywood. Oh my God. Oh yeah, she's a liar. It is possible that she did live in New York shortly after Wynn Rockefeller's release from the Army. She later relocated to New Orleans to start a modeling school, though a search of New Orleans newspapers and business licenses from the 1940s finds no evidence that such of a modeling school ever opened or existed. So that also might have just been a straight-up lie. (laughs) And who is she telling that stuff to? She's telling it to people back in Buchanan. Okay. So like back in Buchanan, Georgia is where her family still lives. So she goes back there every once in a while. So she absolutely did live somewhere. And it's possible it was New York. So the the thought is that she did actually go to New York and she was kind of like a kept woman okay. uh, by Wynn when he got back from World War II. But it seems like the Rockefellers, either Wynn himself or his family, had funded her move to New Orleans because they wanted her out of New York City because he was actually launching a political campaign and he was married to somebody else at this point. Got it. Okay. Yeah. So they're like, let's move the scandalous woman and their love child far, far away from New York. Oh, Um, wow. 
So she landed in New Orleans, and it's widely believed that he was taking care of her bills. And it looks like throughout much of her life, when she was in trouble, he was there financially for her. Well, he did get her knocked up, you know, so. Exactly. That's the whole thing. They were like, why would this heir to a huge fortune and he goes on to become an Arkansas governor why would he still be like paying the bills of this like Alabama housewife if he hadn't fathered a baby with her you know it was in 1947 in New Orleans where she would meet Jacques Mosler Candace was working as a volunteer fundraiser for the city's opera foundation which is a very smart position to be in if you're trying to meet rich men absolutely Uh Uh-huh, and claims that she was given a list of wealthy and well-to-do New Orleans businessmen from whom to solicit donations or to solicit something else. Oh, yeah, some D. (laughs) So they got to solicit that D. (laughs) Upon their meeting, Candace said, he listened politely but told me he had no interest in the opera as the two times he had been, he had fallen asleep. An impassioned Candace appealed to a sense of community and aiding the arts, and she wore him down enough to write a paltry $25 check, which is an extremely small amount for the millionaire. Yeah, come on, dude. (laughs) Come on. Despite his stinginess, the 27-year-old Georgia Peach was taken with the 52-year-old financier. Uh, They soon began dating despite his 30-plus-year marriage and four teenage daughters. Yeah, but Norm was a little too old. But Norm was too old. (laughs) Norm was too poor, girl. Just say it. Yeah, just be straight up, honestly. Jacques had amassed quite the fortune in those 30 years, so it took a while for the lawyers to sort out his divorce from Evelyn. Though it wasn't disclosed, it appears Jacques' affair cost him quite the pretty penny, though not as much as it would later, including his life. Jack and Evelyn's divorce was finalized on May 12, 1949, and Jack and Candace married a mere 12 days later on May 24, 1949. Is that a record? Uh Uh-huh. 12 days from divorce to marriage. That has to be a love murder record. Okay, let's mark this down, guys. 12 days from divorce to marriage. I think it is. I think so, too. I mean, last show we had him file a separation on one on Christmas Eve and then have his girlfriend move in on Christmas Day, but that's not official. They didn't get married. Yeah. Yeah, they didn't get married. Okay, 12 days. We've got a record. Um, Wow. He did make sure to get a prenup this time. Smart. Following a six-week European honeymoon. They did a six week honey where so indulgent all across europe okay i mean yeah i mean nice 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 job if you can get it he was already like real rich at this point so i think he could afford it yeah but it's so funny no matter how rich people are these days they don't take six week vacations usually no i mean that's unheard of in america um what how old are his kids now they're all teenagers so they're between like 14 and 19 okay so they just stayed stateside Yes, they did. And he basically just kind of gives them up at this point. The new Mosslers moved to Houston, Texas for a fresh start, a start that included Candace's two children, but not Jack's four daughters aged 14 and 19. Yikes. So, yeah, there's some definite bad blood between the oldest girls and Candace for sure. By 1952, the new family of four was happily ensconced in a brick Georgian mansion that the press reported was 20,000 square feet and had as many as 56 rooms. What? 20,000 square feet? That's 20 of my homes. (laughs) 
<laughs> Holy you imagine that? shit. Mm-hmm. 57 like, bedrooms? It said 56 rooms. I, so okay. they're counting all the rooms in the house. Yeah. 56 bedrooms is really egregious. Like, how much company do you have? <laughs> unless you're a hotel. I mean. Unless you're a dooger. <laughs> Okay, so life and love and business were looking great for Jacques, who had recently expanded his business to include the manufacturing and sales of mobile homes, an industry that exploded as post-war families looked for affordable housing. So he ended up acquiring several banks and insurance companies as well to make financing even easier, and that, of course, provided an additional layer of income to his portfolio. So he is crushing it. I mean, he just makes such smart decisions every step of the way. Crazy. Candace was happy, though frustrated by her lack of invites into Texas high society. Oh, my God. She was still – yeah, she was still looked at as a gauche country bumpkin trophy wife. Though Jacques' money brought her admission to most events and balls, it did nothing to stop the women from gossiping behind Candace's back. (laughs) Still, she persevered and her children flourished. Rita attended an exclusive private academy, and Norman ended up marrying the 18-year-old daughter of the British Consul General, a knight, and landed a lofty position in one of Jacques' banks. Wow. So, yeah, so her oldest son was doing very well. In January of 1957, two monumental and murderous events would shake up the Mossler's status quo forevermore. So we're going to take a trip over to Chicago in 1954 to visit another family with vastly different circumstances than the Mosslers. But it will tie back in, I promise you. Are you ready? (laughs) Yeah, I think so. This is a murder story within a murder story. Got it. Got it. Okay. So, in 1954 Chicago, a mentally ill 35-year-old man named Leonard Glenn was released from the Elgin State Mental Hospital against the wishes of his doctors. And due to the appeals of his wife, Betty, who was having a difficult time making ends meet with their three young children at home and another on the way. At that time, she was about to give birth to the couple's fourth child. Leonard was most likely some combination of schizophrenic and bipolar and suffered violent mood swings, heightened by intense paranoia and hearing voices. Yikes. Sadly, his mood swings continued past his discharge, and the family was doomed to tragedy shortly after the fall 1956 arrival of the couple's fifth child. So he was let go right before their fourth child, and then after their fifth child, they got pregnant almost right away again and they now had a six-month-old in addition to the four oldest children. Whoa. Yep. Heightened by Leonard's loss of another job and the stress of overwhelming poverty and yet another mouth to feed, Leonard lost his tenuous grasp on reality. On the evening of January 9th, 1957, Leonard confronted Betty with one of his revelations, and this one was about an affair that he believed Betty was having that she absolutely was not. In the heat of the argument, Betty vowed to begin proceedings to have Leonard return to the mental hospital. Later that evening, Betty fell asleep on a cot in the living room, refusing to sleep beside her husband. She went to bed that night with the six-month-old Alexander beside her on the floor on a pallet and five-year-old Daniel and two-year-old Eddie asleep in the same room. Six-year-old Martha and four-year-old Christopher were asleep in a bedroom. So this is five kids, all six and under. Jesus. Can Mm -hmm. you imagine? 
While Betty lay sleeping, Leonard took a hunting rifle from his closet, stepped into the living room, and shot Betty in the head, killing her instantly. Daniel and Eddie were both awakened by the shots, but unaware of what their father had just done. So they're just little guys. They're five and two. Uh. The two-year-old, accustomed to the chaos in the family, said, put the gun down, daddy. Which is wild. They said it was the two-year-old, but I think it was the five-year-old because I have a two-year-old and I don't think she could say, put the gun down, daddy. She might be like, daddy, go. (laughs) (laughs) The entire family went back to sleep. That's the crazy thing. These kids were so little, they didn't even realize what was going on. And they were so accustomed to him behaving like this. And the dad went back to sleep too? Yeah. The dad just put the gun back in the closet and went back to sleep. The next morning, the children saw the blood on their mother's face and realized something had gone terribly wrong. Leonard told the children their mother was sick and needed to rest and that he would be staying home from work to care for them. For the rest of the day, the children played quietly mere feet from their mother's corpse. Oh my God, that's horrible. Isn't that horrible? That evening, the restless younger boys engaged in some horseplay, and one of the kids fell to the floor. The jarring of the floor caused the rifle to dislodge from its hiding place in the bedroom, and it fell to the floor and accidentally discharged. The six-month-old baby had been asleep in the same room, and it became startled by the gunfire, and it started to cry. Hearing the gunshot and the distressed wailing of the infant, Leonard assumed the baby had been shot. In fact, the bullet had ricocheted and landed harmlessly next to the baby on the bed. Oh my God. But it was so, so close. However, Leonard's demons convinced him that Alexander had been wounded but was still alive. So he grabbed a six-inch buck knife from his dresser and began to cut the baby's belly looking for the bullet. What? The bullet was right next to him. And for some reason, he, even though like it's literally laying right there, he believed that the baby had been shot and started to try to save the baby by putting a knife in his belly looking for the bullet. That's horrid. It's horrible. Near midnight the next evening, two Chicago police officers came upon a car stuck in a snowbank. The weather was in the single digits and the streets deserted. The officers discovered an eerily calm Leonard in the car and four small children in the freezing cold back seat, only two of whom were wearing coats oh, huddled together my for God. Horrifyingly, on the front seat besides Leonard was an infant in a snowsuit that was completely soaked in blood. Dead then too, right? Mm-hmm. The baby was not moving. So the officers immediately arrested Leonard and he very calmly told them exactly what happened. Like he told them like that his wife had been possessed and he had to kill her and then he thought the baby was injured so he had to dig the bullet out. Like – to these cops uh, so they, and like uh yeah they immediately like one cop arrested him and the other cop got all the four kids in um in the the heated up squad car and called for an ambulance and the baby was still alive when they got it in the ambulance but it died in the hospital whoa i know it's so 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 sad The two oldest devastated children, Martha and Daniel, had to testify at their father's grand jury hearing. Nah. They were five and six. Yeah. Never good. 
Due to mental incapacitation, he was not charged with the murders, but he was remanded to a psychiatric hospital for the rest of his natural life, which I think is a good call. Yeah. He would never again be allowed contact with his children. The four surviving Glenn children were left destitute orphans. At the same time the Glenn family tragedy was playing out in Chicago, Jack Mosler happened to be in the city for a meeting with the board of his mutual national bank. The case was splashed across all of the newspaper headlines, and Jacques was terribly moved by the children's plight. The Glens had been raised mere blocks from where a young Mosler had once sold newspapers, and most likely were headed into the foster system and were going to be split up. With only a few hours of consideration, Jack Mosler decided he wanted to rescue the children. Whoa. He call- Isn't that amazing? He called Candace, who was dealing with her own family drama in Georgia, which we will get into, and who had lost her own mother at an early age, and she hopped a plane to Chicago and supported Jock in his decision to attempt to adopt the four Glenn children. On January 29th, less than three weeks after the, their mother and brother's murder, Martha, Daniel, Edward, and Christopher were placed into the foster care of the Mosslers, and the new family returned to Houston, where the children were overwhelmed with the grandeur of their new home. Wow. I mean, there's 56 rooms to choose from. I know. Can you imagine, though, going from, like, kind of, like, a one-bed apartment where you live with, like, seven members of your family to this gigantic 20,000-square-foot mansion where there's, like, servants for everything? No. I mean, and you're you're reeling from crazy tragedy. And also, these kids are only, like, two to six. Yeah. So, like, I don't even know how they would have processed any of this, you know? No, that's horrible. Ugh. After several favorable welfare home checks, the children were officially adopted by the Mosslers on September 20th, 1957. Little did they know that they had yet to face another violent murder of one of their parents. Crazy. I mean, crazy how much tragedy was in these kids' lives. Yeah. Meanwhile, the sticky family business that had taken Candace to Georgia prior to the Glenn family tragedy involved her older brother, DeWitt Weatherby. On May 12, 1956, DeWitt was arrested for the murder of a man inside the Silver Dollar, a bar owned by DeWitt just outside of Buchanan. Apparently, the man had drunkenly harassed the cook about an overcooked steak, and patrons overheard DeWitt yelling, you can't threaten to run my help off. There was a scuffle, and then Cecil Thompson, that's the man, had been shot three times in the chest, hip, and groin. Oh. He shot him in the dick. The groin shot? That's just mean. And did they confirm if it was Weatherby? Uh, Yes, they did. So the poker players from the next room were immediately alarmed, and DeWitt said, he's not hurt, I just shot low to scare him. The man was clearly very, very, very hurt, and one of the bar patrons called for an ambulance. So this is, there's a ton of people in this, like, restaurant bar. There's people playing poker, there's people drinking, there's people eating dinner, and they're witnessing all of this. DeWitt runs upstairs where his wife Janet began screaming at him, why did you do it? And apparently DeWitt screamed back, I don't know why I'd done it, but I'd done it. Author Ron Smith called this a redneck opera. (laughs) Sadly, Cecil died on his way to the hospital in the ambulance. He bled out. Yikes, that sucks for DeWitt. That's a terrible death. I mean, it's just all around just terrible. Uh, DeWitt was arrested for murder and the silver dollar was mysteriously burned down to the ground that very night. (sighs) 
Well, vigilante justice right there. Whoa. Some mm-hmm. real Georgia shit. Yeah, that is. <laughs> Candace attempted to use Win Rockefeller, by then an Arkansas governor, to persuade the Georgia governor to pardon her brother. But it didn't work because Win was a Republican Yankee and the Georgia governor was a strident Southern Democrat. Candace spared no expense to get her brother released and hired a high-powered legal team for DeWitt, but he was still sentenced to life and all appeals failed. So then she attempted to bribe two sitting Georgia governors for pardons to no avail. In 1962, she eventually funded the successful campaign of a young Democratic governor hopeful, and he won in a surprise victory. So she basically, after like not being able to convince one governor to get another governor to do it, then failing to bribe two governors and failing to just have his legal team win, she then paid for an election to be bought, essentially. Within days of his inauguration, the state parole board met to consider the matter of DeWitt Weatherby. After serving only four years of a life sentence, Candace's brother was freed. A member of the parole board said with a straight face that the Cecil Thompson killing was a clear case of self-defense, an argument that the trial jury appeals courts and two previous governors had all rejected. Money is power. Uh Uh-huh. So this is what these people are up to. Isn't this crazy? Being pardoned still, like, makes me shook. Well, like, yeah, I, if you're guilty. Exactly. If you're guilty <laughs> and you're supposed to be. pardons for innocent people. <laughs> yeah, but it's not. It's always like the president's BFF, you know? Like, yep. It's, it's who you know, man. If you're going to kill people, you better have a lot of money and connections. Wow. Mm-hmm. So if you think this story with its rags to riches immigrant tale, multiple murders, and adopted orphan storyline couldn't get any weirder, you're totally wrong. It gets weirder. <laughs> In October of 1957, which you might remember as only one month after the Glenn children were officially adopted, Candace was driving to Buchanan from Atlanta after visiting her brother in prison, but she never reached her hometown. When Candace didn't arrive in Buchanan, her family filed a missing persons report with the Georgia Bureau of Investigation. Ugh. For three days. An intensive search of the roads between Atlanta and Buchanan was conducted. Finally, on Friday afternoon, that's a full three days later, a dirty, disheveled, and barefoot Candace ended up on the doorstep of a farmhouse outside of Cordell, Georgia, which is 140 miles south of Atlanta. Not even close to a route to get to get anyone to Buchanan. Her rental car was found smashed against a tree. She had a large bruise on her forehead and appeared to have suffered a concussion. She was rushed to the hospital and Jacques immediately flew to be at her side. Candace perplexed the authorities when she claimed to not be able to remember where she had been for the prior three days, why she was so off course for her destination, nor what had caused the collision. Jack explained that the stress of her brother's conviction had been causing insomnia and that Candace had become reliant upon sleeping pills and it was his belief that she must have fallen asleep at the wheel. He made a large donation to help offset the cost of the three-day search and asked that the investigation be closed, which it was. What are they hiding? Where the hell was she? What are they hiding? Yeah. Isn't that sketchy? Yeah. On February 18th, 1960, Candace turned 40, and boy, did she give herself a transformation. 
She lost weight and began to dress provocatively. She changed up her hairstyle from a perm to a softer, straighter cut. She appeared to have breast implants put in and some cosmetic work done to her face. (laughs) This was around the time she began insisting that she was really only 33. Wow. Yeah, so she, like, gave herself a glow up for her 40th birthday. 33rd. 33rd, rather. Excuse me. She started insisting, like I said at the beginning, that her birth certificate was seven whole years off through a typo. (laughs) You know, those zeros just look like sevens sometimes. (laughs) Sometimes it happens. (laughs) Candace was transformed on the outside and the inside. All of a sudden, she wanted to have fun and take advantage of the nightlife that Houston had to offer. She had been married to her much older husband for about 13 years now, and she was bored and contemptuous of him. In many ways, her marriage to Jack now seemed as confining and joyless as her years with Norman Johnson. Wow. Mm-hmm. While with Norman, she had pursued Win Rockefeller, a now married to a wealthy, nearly elderly man, she took pleasure in seducing young, virile men. Here we go. Yeah, so she didn't need that money anymore. She had it. She needed that hot Wait, cock. Young D. Yeah. (laughs) In her 40s, she became what we might call a cougar. She had a fondness for rhythm and blues music and particularly enjoyed lavishing her attention on black men, which was very risque in the 1960s. Yeah, and she's in Texas, right? Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. So she became a regular at a popular R&B club in Houston called the Minutis Club. Acts who passed through the club were the likes of Little Richard, Fats Domino, Jerry Lee Lewis, and Bo Diddley. Yeah, come on. There, I mean, that is awesome to be back in that day at those clubs. And I mean, it sounds like she had good taste because you know those clubs were like so much better than the old white people clubs. Yes, yeah. It didn't help matters that Jack was constantly on the road, either chasing the high of his next business deal or perhaps avoiding his wayward wife, or both. (laughs) Candace preferred him gone, he preferred to be gone, and he was a drag on her social life anyway. In August of 1961, Candace took some friends and hangers-on to see Chuck Berry perform at the Menudis Club. Candace was absolutely entranced with him. From Nobody's Perfect, Ron Smith wrote, In his 1987 autobiography, Barry confirmed what many of their friends had known for a long time. He and Candace were friends and lovers for many years. Their relationship began that evening in the Minutis Club. At the end of his final set, Barry was asked to meet a fan seated at the back of the room. The fan was Candace Mosler. Barry was invited to accompany the Mosler party back to the mansion on Willowick. The rock icon enjoyed breakfast with the party and was invited to spend the night in the guest room alone. Or alone rather than the hostess, actually. The relationship was consummated that very evening and apparently lasted into the 70s. The combination of unlimited wealth, boredom with Jack, and her increasingly reckless behavior made it inevitable that life on Willowick would soon explode. All it needed was a lit match, and soon that baby was coming in the form of Candy's handsome young nephew, Melvin Lane Powers. So Melvin Powers was born to Candace's older sister, Mary Elizabeth, on January 13th, 1942, making him 22 years younger than his glamorous aunt. (laughs) He was six foot four with coal black hair and athletic build. He was a good-looking guy, but his face had been scarred terribly by teenage acne, and he remained self-conscious about that for most of his life. 
The acne scars didn't seem to slow him down with women, however. In high school, Mel seemed to have been best known for having sex with as many women as possible. And because he's gross, he was known to boast about his many conquests. (laughs) (laughs) He particularly liked bragging about his skill at pleasing women with oral sex. So bragging is gross, but I think it's kind of cool he's like going down on the ladies in the late 50s and early 60s. For sure. I Honestly, I'm not even mad about him bragging about it because I feel like it was such taboo Yeah, for people like, to even I mean, talk about. Just, <laughs> he was bringing awareness that the ladies need love down there too. <laughs> I feel like a lot of communities and a lot of men, if they heard a guy did that, they were ostracized. Yeah, I think it's because he was like really athletic and he was like a big guy and he was, I think, considered popular but they were like i mean i guess so so thanks for spreading the word and (laughs) other things (laughs) unfortunately we can't really like him for long okay because after high school he became involved with some dubious characters when he began selling magazine subscriptions throughout the midwest he along with some crooked colleagues conned a lonely elderly engineer into an investment of $20,000 to buy stock in their magazine subscription firm. They had no authority to make such a deal, nor did a deal like that exist at all. Yikes. So they just pocketed the money. Mm-hmm. They just they told him that's what it was for, and they took twenty grand. The frail 89-year-old man had been duped out of his entire retirement savings. Luckily, the police caught on fairly quickly while investigating one of Mel's co-workers for yet another related crime. Mel was arrested in 1961, and he served 90 days in county jail. That's it? That's it. That's all you get for swindling a sweet old man, apparently. It's fucked up. When he was released, Mary Elizabeth begged her sister Candace to take the wayward boy under her husband's wing and perhaps get him a job repossessing cars. So, like, Candace had obviously married up in this family. Yeah. And I think that the rest of the family were, you know, still of modest means. So when she was like, okay, I think her son at this point was like, this is 1961. So he's, like, barely 20. He's, like, a really young kid, you know? And she's like, okay, I definitely need to get him some help. And Candace has this amazing husband. Maybe he can get him a job, put him on the right path, you know? Yeah. So Candace immediately wired Mel money for a plane ticket. And he arrived just in time for Thanksgiving. Right away, Mel and Candace were thick as thieves. They were going out together at night and having a ball. Oh, my God. So she basically got a young, fun companion to go out to all these clubs with her. And, of like, course. Yeah. Jack Mossler hated Mel almost as quickly as Candace became enamored with him. Being the hound that he was, it took Mel little time to take notice of how attractive and flirtatious his aunt had become since he saw her last. Oh, no. Is this where the incest plays in? Uh, like, so gross because it's her sister's son. Oh, God. But I know. if you're really lusting for that Peter Pan syndrome, you know, it's yep. like, oh, ugh. Okay. Continue. I I was telling my family about this story and I said to like my brother and his fiance, that's like if John, my brother, like ended up with Alden, like that's the same family connection. And Nathaniel was so grossed out. He goes, you couldn't have said like John ended up with your aunt. You had to say John ended up with our daughter. I was like, I wanted to drive home how really gross it is. Okay. (laughs) And I mean, granted, they probably didn't know each other very well. I'm sure that they saw each other a handful of times. It's not okay. It's but it's still it's not okay. Oof. 
Like we can all go ew. Like let's just all collectively go ew. Right ew. Now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he could tell that she craved male attention and he was eager to give it to her, blood relationship or not. Candy loved having the constant companionship of a young, virile man and set out to make over her pet project. She bought him thousands of dollars of custom suits and designer clothes. When Mel required surgery to get his tonsils out, she arranged for the surgeon to tuck his protruding ears and circumcise him at the same time. What? Yeah, which begs the question... How the hell did she know that he might need a circumcision? I also don't think that there's anything su- – like, I don't think you need a circumcision as an adult anyway. So was she just, like, fixing her him up to, like, her favorite look? Probably. I mean, he mm-hmm. seems to have been doing just fine uncircumcised with all of his girls yeah, in high school. a lot of ladies. He was not having a problem being uncut over there. Oh, God. That's real intense. It's so intense. So she's like, let's like fix up the ears. Let's, uh, you know, <laughs> cut back that cut turtleneck. <laughs> Roll it on back. Oh my God. <laughs> also, can you imagine how much that would hurt? He was no. like 20. I know. It's like, so bad when it's later. It's not okay. Uh, she also paid for skin treatments to help his acne scars, but it didn't really help. I don't think the laser treatments were as good as they are today. This is still like the early 60s. Um, wow. So he still had faint marks. So she was really giving him a little Kendall makeover here. Wow. Yep. When Jack reminded Candace that Mel was supposedly there to get a job, not be a kept man on his dime, Candace kept coming up with excuses why Mel couldn't possibly work yet. She just wanted him to be her like boy toy in the house where she could find him wherever she wanted him. He also had to so, heal from, you know, his surgery. <laughs> from everything. Yeah. 1961 turned into 1962, and Mel didn't seem very much interested in getting a job. What he did seem interested in was his aunt. So I'm going to read a selection from (laughs) – Yeah, Andy's doing the – I don't even know. Is that the eating out gesture? What would you say? It's the eating out gesture. Yes, it is. Yeah, I always have to say the dirty things you're doing, and it makes me look bad. Like, Andy's the one actually doing the blowjob. It's or not like true. Not true. Things. Not true. You're just <laughs> imagining it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> this is from Nobody's Perfect. Candace had always enjoyed the art of flirting. She seemed to have an endless repertoire of body jokes. Somewhere along the way, Mel began to test the limits of her playfulness. She responded favorably. He preyed upon her loveless relationship with Jack. He boasted to her about his prowess with the girls, and she didn't discourage him. He pressed further, describing how he would make love to a woman of her beauty. Eventually, she confided to Mel that she and Jack had a sexless marriage, which had forced her to seek solace in the beds of her young nightclub companions. Candace made clear to her nephew that she very much enjoyed the type of sexual play that he boasted of. By the spring of 1962, their relationship became physical. It turned out that like Mel, Aunt Candy had no moral boundaries that precluded incest. Oh, God. (laughs) So ew. Sorry, guys. If I had to read that, you all had to suffer through it with me. (laughs) 
So by summer of 1962, Mel had been staying in the lap of luxury at Willowick for months, warming Candace's bed and wearing out his welcome with Jack. Jack was particularly disturbed at how badly the ex-convict treated his staff. Yeah, this guy was a real freaking peach. He was a total racist, and he treated the black servants on staff particularly poorly. Oh, no. Yeah, he is a real dick. At one point, Jack lost it on Mel after witnessing him berate a cook over a stale cup of coffee, and he said at least they put in an honest day's work, which points Jack. Yeah. Yeah. Jack was eager to get the freeloader out of his house and finally consented to give Mel a job as a clerk at one of his businesses. He didn't admire the man or his work ethic or really want to hire him, but he hoped a regular paycheck would incentivize him to get the hell out of his house. For Probably months, not. No. He was, he was having too much fun with Aunt Candy. Yeah, probably not. He was not going to mess with a good thing. <laughs> For months, Jack remained in denial about his wife's incestuous affair while gossip flew all over Houston and even spread all the way to Dallas. So apparently they were like running around doing whatever. I don't know who was raising these children because Jack was like flying all over for business and she was just like out with Mel doing whatever she wanted. At one point, um, a ticket taker at the airport reported that they came in drunk and wanted to buy a last minute flight to Vegas and she was wearing a mink coat and as she bent over to get something the coat slipped and it revealed that she was completely naked underneath the mink coat. That was coat. like such a thing in the 70s and I mean, 60s wasn't it? That it was, was member um, Car Stereo. Our first ever episode. Yep. She came home naked except for the mink coat. Yep. Yeah. I also was thinking like those were very different times because you'd have to take that coat off for airport security now. <laughs> yeah. What are you going to do with that? Nothing underneath. <laughs> exactly. That would cause quite the stir. <laughs> hey, at least they know you weren't hiding anything. Yep. You wouldn't need a pat down in that look. <laughs> nope. And then even worse, people in town started calling Mel the anteater. Which I think is very imaginative, I have to say. That is really imaginative and I feel like very risky for back then. Mm-hmm. Oh, wow. However, in May of 1963, one of the Mosler Acceptance employees in Houston encountered Mel and Candace in a Mexican restaurant where the two were embracing, carrying on, and Mel kept his hand on Candace's thigh for the entirety of the meal. When Candace put her hand on her nephew's crotch, though, the disgusted employee paid his bill and reported the incident to his boss the next day. His boss discreetly advised Jack of his wife's apparent peccadillo, leaving Jack with little choice but to confront her. So he kind of knew what was going on, but nobody had confronted him to his face. And yeah. now this was like his employee's employee. This is like two levels below Jack. So it's really embarrassing and discretion did not last long i mean it flew through the company so he had to do something about it you know Ugh, gross upon his return to the mansion jack didn't find the illicit lovers but he did speak to his household staff who tearfully confessed to their knowledge of the affair alberta the cook who mel had tormented said all those months when mr mel was supposed to be out looking for a job he and miss candace were spending most of their time upstairs fooling around they were always making a mess of them sheets in mr mel's room mr jack miss candace is making a fool out of you and she's warned us all to say nothing to nobody yikes and they were all very loyal to jack so i'm sure that this tore them apart of course 
The situation erupted when Jack told Candace Mel had exactly one month to pack his bags and leave. Candace retorted that she needed Mel. He helped around the house, which was much more than Jack ever did, who was always gone, sleeping with God knows who, while she was raising four kids who had been his idea to adopt. Gaslighting. Jack She's totally gaslighting. And, like, you know, projecting and putting all of, like, everything that he's accusing of her back on him. Jack attempted to get Candace to lower her voice. The children didn't hear them arguing. But he did stay firm on ordering that that dumb son of a bitch get out of the house. Candace said, they ask me all the time why you're never around. At least he spends time with them. Jack finally dropped the bomb because he was like pissed about the accusation that he was a bad dad. He goes, oh, so is that why you're sleeping with him? And so he expected her to like at least try to deny it. Yeah. Instead of denying it, Candace just smiled at him and said, he pleases me in ways you can't even imagine. Oh. (laughs) (laughs) Gross. So gross. Disgusted, Jack turned to leave, but not before Candace got one more dig in. You know, each time you leave this house, I hope that you'll do us all a favor and just die. I knew she was going to say that. She's Mm -hmm. so vindictive. You're right. She's vindictive. Aff. Jack consulted with his friend D.A. Frank Briscoe to see if he could have Candace and Mel arrested for incest. But Frank advised him that it was very messy to prosecute when the offenders were consenting adults, and furthermore, the humongous scandal it would cause would certainly blow back on Jack, his businesses, and his children. That's really good guidance from the DA. Yeah. Yeah. The only thing the DA could do for his old friend was evict Mel from his home. So on June 20th, 1963, yep, he sent two police officers who served Mel an immediate eviction notice and waited for him to pack his bags so they could escort him out. That's classier. That's much classier. And of course, also the DA advised Jack to not be there to cause a scene. Yep. But Jack didn't listen to that advice because he very pettily wanted to see it happen, you know? So, yes, Jack had been advised to not be present when the eviction took place, but he was too eager to witness the scene he had long waited for, and Mel spotted him as he was being hauled out of the house and said, Mr. Mosler, I'll be back one day, and you'll remember this as the longest day of your life. Oh, God. Mm-hmm. So, of course, Jacques and Candace fought bitterly about Mel's eviction. The marriage was conclusively over. Candace wanted out of the marriage as well, But her prenuptial agreement stipulated she would only get $200,000 if they divorced rather than the $33 million she would stand to inherit in the case of Jack's death. Whoa. So you can see where I am and where she was going with this. I think, I think, I think I can maybe (laughs) start to imagine. together. Yes. So meanwhile, Jack, of course, would have been happy to send her packing with the $200,000, but his divorce attorneys advised him that it was going to be a huge scandal and a story in the media. He suggested that Jack establish residence at his condo in Miami and begin divorce proceedings there where they might attract less attention and wouldn't affect the children so negatively. So Jack did, he at least began. So he moved to Miami to establish residence at this point. Yeah. Beyond just the marital assets, Candace had managed to weave her way into every part of Jack's life, and it would be hard for him to entirely rid himself of her. Several years earlier, Jack had allowed Candace to talk him into placing her on the board of Mossler Acceptance. 
So she was on the board. He now felt the looks of pity and disgust from his closest associates whenever he and Candace were forced to be present in meetings together. Yikes. Ugh, the things you do for love. Ooh. In early March, he returned to Houston from Miami to visit the children and take them out to dinner at their favorite Italian restaurant. Upon his dropping them off at the mansion, Candace informed him that she'd be sending the children to boarding school in Switzerland. Being a single parent of four children was simply too much for her. Oh, yeah, because she was so busy with motherly things. Because she was really doing the school runs and being the PTA president over here. Uh huh. Jacques was too tired to argue and honestly felt that the less the children were subjected to their mother's behavior, the better. She agreed she would bring the children to Miami in June for a visit before she continued on to Switzerland to drop them off. It was during that fateful visit that brings us back to the beginning and Jacques Mossler's untimely death at the hands of his wife's lover. So it was? It was Melvin. For Stop. Sure. Mm hmm. So going back to the morning after the murder, the first to be notified of the murder was Mossler family doctor, Dr. John Hardeverker, who was called by Rita, Candace's oldest daughter, at 4.40 a.m. She reported that someone had broken into the apartment and killed her father. He found it odd that she had called a family practitioner and not the police, but he hung up anyway and called them on their behalf. When the police arrived on the scene, they found a nearly nude and certainly deceased Jack covered with a blanket. When they lifted the blanket, it became clear that he'd been stabbed multiple, multiple times. Oh, no. Far too many for a passionless burglar. And his head had also been bashed in by some sort of blunt object. Candace was there wailing in a dramatic fashion over and over. Oh, my God. Seemingly for the benefit of the police. And she kept saying very weirdly, Oh, Jack, what have you done over and over again, seeming to suggest that the murder was somehow the victim's fault. When asked about her whereabouts on the evening of the killing, Candace claims that she and the children left the apartment around 12.45 a.m. to buy postage stamps and place some bills in the mail. At midnight. At, at 12, almost 1 a.m., her adult daughter, Rita, had driven them in a red convertible. It seems obvious to the investigators that Candace was potentially setting up an alibi. Who needs to buy stamps at 1 a.m. and brings children who range in age from 8 to 13 with them to do it? That is so strange. It's bizarre. Upon leaving the DuPont Hotel where they had mailed the bills, Candace claimed she felt one of her aggressive migraine headaches coming on, which was a condition that had ailed her ever since her mysterious disappearance and car accident, and checked into the emergency room for treatment. According to Candace, she spent almost three hours in the ER, which was exactly when Jacques was being killed. Uh-huh. So she definitely set it up because, of course, they had to check her into the hospital. She had an airtight alibi. Yeah, just like last week. Yep. And then returned to the apartment to discover the body sometime around 4 a.m. During the questioning, Candace suggested that Jack had many enemies due to his line of business or perhaps it was potentially a burglary gone wrong. When the investigators told her that the overkill of the stab wounds would suggest a crime of passion and certainly somebody that he knew, she reluctantly confessed that her husband was a gasp homosexual and that he had uh. moved out of the Houston family home into Miami to enjoy the pleasures of a parade of young transient men, any of whom could have killed him. Wow, she is ruthless. 
ruthless. It wasn't enough that she killed him. She wanted to decimate him and then like take his reputation and and just sully it because of what homosexuality was looked at during that time. Yeah, and there's zero validity to that, right? Zero validity. Yeah, okay. There was absolutely no evidence this was even remotely true. In fact, the only there was only scant evidence that he even had an affair with a woman, but it was definitely a woman in Chicago. Wow. And everyone who worked for him said that there was like absolutely no way. Wow. Yeah. Mhm. It was definitely just an insidious suggestion intended to muddy the waters and cast blame anywhere other than her and, of course, like I said, to get that last little dig in on him. Wow. The investigators didn't believe it either. Their BS detector was going haywire. So there's nothing (laughs) they could do, though, to, like, hold her because she had an airtight alibi. They had to, like, just let her go back to the hotel where she was staying with her kids. Well, and she's not the one that did the act anyway. Exactly. A major break in the case occurred later that evening. When a forensic tech lifted one distinct palm print from the kitchen counter in Jack's apartment. By 9 p.m. that evening, a match came through from the FBI's database. It matched Melvin Lane Powers. Wow. What a name, too. (laughs) Melvin Lane Powers. But this is also back in the days where somebody thought Melvin was, like, a good name for a boy. like strong name. You know, we're thinking about baby names, and it's like... You want to give him, you know, with the name that he can really be like an attorney or a rock star or a writer, you know, and like it can be cute when he's little, but like a man when he's older. Melvin. Perfect. Nailed it. (laughs) Melvin. You got to give it to this guy, though. He somehow turned into a ladies man, even with the name Melvin. And the bad acne scars. And the bad acne scars. It's all that, you know. Hey, you know, a little pussy eating and people will will look beyond. (laughs) Oh, man. Until this very moment, none of the investigators knew anything about Mel or his connection to the victim. Only a few hours later, he became much, much, much more of a person of interest <laughs> when six fingerprints from the interior of the white Chevrolet Candace had rented for her trip to Miami were also matched to his records. And the last known address on record for Mel was the Willowick address already known to the police as the Mossler home. Yeah. So it's pretty obvious. Pretty, pretty, pretty obvious. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Hopefully he gets a few little, uh, you know, hangouts in with with, with his aunt before mm-hmm. he's got to go to go to prison. So Candace had claimed that she returned the white Chevrolet to one of Jacques' employees days before the murder, mm-hmm. but the employee steadfastly denied it. Two separate neighbors of Jack's had given a statement that they had witnessed a large, dark-haired man running from the Mossler apartment around the time of the murder and get away in a white Chevy with tail fins exactly like the fins on the borrowed car. (laughs) They have witnesses. They have everything. So the investigators' curiosity is certainly piqued. And they feel pretty good about their current suspect when they find flight records that show one M. Powers Mossler had flown out of Miami to head back to Houston at 7.50 in the morning on the morning directly after the murder. Why is he using her last name? I don't know. It's very weird. Really weird. I think that they like to like pretend they were a married couple because it said often too when they like traveled together, they would check in as Mr. and Mrs. Powers Mossler. So gross. So gross. I mean, I don't know. Maybe they were 
I, I'm not sure if they had credit cards in the 60s, but maybe they were like using his like checks or something too. So they had to like say Mossler. Yeah. Meanwhile, the medical examiner concluded that Jacques had been hit twice in the head with a blunt object, the first time crushing the back of his skull and the second blow shattering his cheekbone. He had then been stabbed a combination of 39 times. Holy shit. Mm-hmm. Indicating a level of rage and strength in the killer because the wounds were also incredibly deep. So he was really putting some muscle behind this. Yikes, that is scary. I mean, apparently he stabbed him a number of times in the front. And then it looked like he had laid, like he had fallen down. He was probably already dead. Yeah. And then it, it looks like he had covered him with one blanket like thinking like you know candy and the kids are going to come in here and he didn't want the kids to see that and then he must have rethought it because they said then he stabbed him more times through the blanket in the back whoa that's deep yeah so he was pissed all signs pointed to mel so the miami detectives got on the phone with the houston police and da who were very familiar with the drama at the mossler family <laughs> home because the da had been involved with Jacques evicting him. Get him out of his house yeah. yeah and filled them in on the events that certainly would speak to motive they immediately flew to texas to detain and question mel they confronted him with the facts they had his prints in the apartment and the getaway car they had the flights that put him in miami the day of the murder oh and out the next day god SMH. They knew he was, <laughs> yeah they knew he was having an affair with mosler's wife and that the two men had fought resulting in mel's eviction from the home in short they knew he was guilty i mean think about all of that evidence stacked up against him oh it's just so dumb so Mel attempted to lie and deny for hours, but he eventually broke and confessed. I mean, he's a young but, kid now, isn't he? Like in his early yeah, 20s he's only – he's like 22, I think, at this point. Yeah, yeah. so young. So he's 22 or 23, maybe 23. Yeah, still very, very young. Um, he refused to implicate Candace or speak any longer on the subject until he received an attorney. He had been held for 12 hours of questioning when they booked him for murder at 5 a.m. on Saturday of July 4th, 1964. Melvin ended up calling Candy, who hired the absolute best defense attorney in all of Texas and probably the whole U.S. This guy is fire. And set to his defense, Mel's initial confession was thrown out due to Miranda laws that had only recently been enacted. Whoa. So the Miranda case had just happened and it seemed like the Texas and Miami cops like either weren't aware of it or it was such a new phenomenon that they had to advise people of their rights yeah. that they forgot to do it somehow. Wow. So his entire confession totally thrown out. So then he could just change the whole thing from now. Exactly. It didn't matter. It didn't count for anything. They could not tell the jury. They they could not bring it up at all. I wonder how many how many crimes that happened for during that time. Oh, so many. Right? At, at any period of change. Yeah. So Percy Foreman, the attorney Candace hired, was a bear of a man, standing six foot four and weighing over two hundred and eighty pounds. We're gonna definitely get some Whoa. pictures. He's a big guy. And he's really, really interesting. He was sixty-two years old in nineteen sixty-four, had a photographic memory, and was widely considered the best defense attorney in all of the country. It was estimated that he had tried over three hundred and fifty murder cases in his career, and he lost only one. Holy shit. <laughs> yeah. What a record. 
Yep, he once said, um, somebody asked him why he tried so many murder trials, and he said he liked trying murders because there's one less witness to deal with. <laughs> Just brutal. It's a little ruthless, huh? He's totally ruthless. When once asked if he felt bad about winning the acquittal of so many obviously guilty defendants, Foreman scoffed, if they're guilty, my fee will be their punishment. Oh, my God. <laughs> And ooh, boy, what a fee it was. Foreman agreed to represent Powers for $200,000. In today's money, that's $1.7 million. And he did it 350 times. Uh Uh-huh. To put it in perspective, Willie Mays of the San Francisco Giants was at the time the highest paid Major League Baseball player, and he brought in $105,000 a year. So half what this guy got for one trial. Holy shit. (laughs) So Jock's estate was frozen at the moment, obviously, because the woman who was going to stand to inherit everything was accused of potentially murdering him. So she literally had Percy come over to her house so they could hammer out the details. And she was like, look, you know what I'm worth. But it's everything's frozen. But if she lost, she was probably not going to get any of it. So he went upstairs and pawed through her jewelry drawer and ended up taking $75,000 of diamonds and jewelry and rare gems. Oh, my God. (laughs) And that was his down payment. Isn't that wild? That is crazy. Is that legal? I don't know. I mean, he can take whatever payment he wants. He's the boss, I guess, right? Wow. So the the deal was that he was going to get paid this $200,000 and that upon the receipt of the money, he would give her back the jewelry. I think there was also – So it's a like deed, a collateral. Like, it's a collateral thing. Yeah. So he was just holding the jewelry and I think he also held a deed to a ranch they owned. Wow. So he'd also get that if she didn't pay. Wow. Uh-huh. <laughs> But he was the best of the best, man. And you can see he's worth it in this trial. I mean, he does some crazy tricks. The Florida DA decided to try both Mel and Candace for murder at trial. It was a risky decision to include Candace in the charges, but the authorities felt very strongly that she was the one pulling the strings here and felt confident that a jury would feel the same way. Investigators had dug up three different men that claimed Candace herself or Mel on his aunt's behalf had offered them money to kill Jacques. That, the connection to Mel, the crazy amount of forensic evidence that tied Mel to the crime, and the strong motive for both were enough to extradite both parties back to Miami to face trial. While the DA was mounting evidence and filing paperwork for extradition, Mel was being held in a Texas prison, and Candace had checked into the Mayo Clinic in Minnesota ostensibly for treatment for a blood disorder, but it is widely believed it was just to avoid questioning from investigators because there was no evidence she ever had any sort of leukemia or blood disorder. Yeah, she loves the hospital alibis. Uh Uh-huh. Though Mel seemed extremely loyal to his aunt, lover, and benefactress, it seems that with Mel stuck in jail, Candace needed a new boy toy. Before her lawyer recommended she turn herself in in Miami, she flew William Miesmer, a 24-year-old ex-employee of Jacques, up to Minnesota on three different weekends to have marathon sex sessions. William sheepishly reported that she had paid for his plane tickets, took him on shopping sprees, and sent him home with pocket money. 
So wow. she was like, I got money. I can pay for this now. You know, she's just doing what rich dudes do all the time. Yeah. Except for killing her husband. I was going to say, yeah, being yeah. <laughs> a convicted murderer. Hopefully. Except for that. Yeah. Yeah. Hopefully convicted. Eventually, though, it was time to face the music, and Candace reluctantly flew to Miami to attend her own arraignment. So I'm going to read um, something from Ron Smith's book, and it's about her arrival in Miami and how crazy the press got. Candace's arrival at Miami International Airport rivaled the reception that a film star might have generated. The press corps waiting at the arrival gate was estimated between 50 and 60. Candace had donned a pair of wraparound sunglasses to protect her eyes from the explosion of flashbulbs. The passengers who followed her behind were not so fortunate. Manson Hill, who is the, the sheriff in Miami, yeah. had been ordered to formally arrest Candace outside the presence of her children if possible. The last thing the DA wanted was a public spectacle with children holding onto their mother's skirt as she was dragged away to jail. Alas, the throng of media made it impossible for Hill to separate Candace from the crowd. The press corps of 1964 were no less insipid than their modern-day counterparts. A television reporter asked Candace the probing question, Did you murder your husband? Of course not, she said in her throaty Georgia drawl. I've done nothing but love my husband. One brave television reporter pressed his microphone forward and asked, Mrs. Mosler, you've been accused of incest, adultery, and murder. What would you like people to know about you? Looking squarely into the cameras, the pride of Buchanan, Georgia, smiled demurely and said, Well, sir, no one is perfect. Oh. <laughs> I'm just this mic dropping right now. Woman. I'm just script dropping. This no woman. No one is perfect. She is unbelievable. Wow. Oh, my God. If, if she existed today and beat a murder rap, you know they would have immediately given her her own reality show. Oh, 100%. Uh-huh. <laughs> That's where the title of the book comes from, though, is No One is Perfect. Wow. The, yeah. The murder trial began with jury selection on January 17th, 1966, and it was huge news. NBC, ABC, and CBS all sent TV crews to cover the trial, but the primary source of the trial's coverage was the print media. Virtually every major city's newspaper sent reporters. In Chicago, the Tribune plastered photos of Candy and Mel on city buses. It was the most sensational and covered criminal trial in America since the Lindbergh kidnapping Whoa. in 1939. Mm -hmm. I mean, this was like kind of an OJ trial before its time because it's somebody who's famous and rich, uh, you know, and it's very scandalous and they're hiring really good defense attorneys, you know? Yeah, in bed with someone else too. It's like... Exactly. So the judge was the Honorable George Schultz, a third-term judge and war veteran who is known for being tough, fair, and particularly prudish about risque sexual matters. Oh, no. This is, I don't know if it's like somebody's idea of a joke to put him on this case because it's about to get real scandalous. Oh, no. In this case, he famously issued an edict that no one under the age of 21 would be allowed in the gallery to prevent tender young ears from hearing the sexual content of the trial. Oh, it's like so, a church trial. Uh, this is our first adults-only trial. It was like a club where you had to, like, show your ID to get in. Wow. I mean, he was right about the fact that sex was going to lead pretty heavily into this. Um, because right from the get, right from jury selection, they were talking about 
the adultery and incest. Of course. So I'm going to read reflection here. When the first group of 12 prospective jurors for the Mosler trial was seated, Percy Foreman wasted no time in confronting the issue that would dominate this case, sex. Foreman advised the juror candidates that the trial would bring out sordid details of adultery, fornication, and incestuous relationships. The big Texan laid bare the moral failings of the two defendants by asking prospective jurors, if you had adultery, fornication, and incestuous relationships proven beyond a reasonable doubt, but you were not satisfied that the prosecution had proven homicide, would you convict them of murder? A major part of the state's case was based on proving adultery, fornication, and incest. Shockingly to the DA, Foreman was laying those cards all on the table for the prospective jurors to see. It was vintage Percy Foreman and genius strategy as well. If the big bear of a lawyer saw a juror candidate recoil in horror or disgust at the mere mention of such sins, that person would never be impaneled. Foreman intended to take the shock value of his client's sexual behavior off the table before the DA could call a single witness. Yeah. It's just like in All My Axes, remember? He's yeah. like she killed her yeah <laughs> you know and everyone's like whoa and the prosecution's like wait that was our whole case yeah so this is basically the same thing like so many of the prosecution's witnesses were people just talking about their relationship yeah. and witnessing the incest and i think that the reason why they were so confident going in was because they knew that people especially in the 1960s would be like completely disgusted with incestual adultery like yeah. they would have probably been grossed out just by adultery because people were you know more proper then yep but then we're talking about incest and it's also an older woman and a younger man you know yeah he's just thinning out the weeds or whatever he's mm -hmm. like trying to just get rid of anyone who and it's so smart i mean you can immediately tell who's like real grossed out and then which guys are like eh, i don't know she's kind of cute <laughs> maybe if she was my aunt eh. <laughs> Again and again and again, Foreman reminded the jury pool the charge was simply murder, not incest or adultery. In his opening statements, Percy Foreman, the defense attorney, essentially put the victim of Jack Mossler on trial rather than his clients. He discussed his business enemies and rivals and multiple lawsuits, which was valid. Yeah. And then other completely outlandish accusations presented as fact – such as Jack being a promiscuous gay swinger who preyed on teens and young boys. These were – he was just lying. Yeah, but that's so far-fetched. They can, they can lie in their opening statements, you know? Yeah. He also suggested that the four eldest Mossler children, Jack's four daughters from his first marriage, were in a plot with the DA to convict Candace so they could get their claws on Jack's estate. Meanwhile, if you want to hear something really screwed up about Candace – was the December before his murder, while he was on business, Candace went into his office where he had all of his documents in a safe, including his will, and she got a locksmith to break into that safe, and she took all of his financial documents out. And so when the police confronted her about this, because, you know, his employees told on her, um, she said that it was because the children's birth certificates were in the safe, and that she needed to get their passports for the boarding school experience. So I don't think that their boarding, their birth certificates were even in that state. She got it so she could get her hands on his will. Wow. 
Mm-hmm. And what'd she do with so, it? So they don't know if she like amended it or if he never changed it. Okay. But she did end up, if she wasn't convicted, she was basically set to inherit almost everything. Wow. He set aside a little bit of money for his four oldest daughters, but I mean, she was also on the board of his company. She would take control of his companies and inherit all of his wealth. Wow. Mm-hmm. He also put forth a new killer, a poor soul named Roy Weissel, who actually was closeted and had been jumped when he was cruising for a date so badly that he had to be hospitalized the same night that Jack had been killed. So this guy was actually closeted and the same night he just very coincidentally was like on a popular gay beach like only a mile or two away from where Jack's apartment was yeah but the guys who picked him up were actually there to rob him and then they beat him up the poor guy and he managed to like barely survive and crawl into this power plant that was like near the beach and the employee there like the night watchman brought him to the hospital and Based on the timing, there's like absolutely no way that he could have committed the murder based on when he was arrived at the hospital. Plus, they did test his blood type and it wasn't a match for any of the blood found in the apartment. And he was bleeding profusely. So there's no way he wouldn't have bled all over the apartment. No. Yeah. Um, Such he just needed, It's completely ridiculous. Percy just needed to create a probable alternative suspect. And I think that this already just segued into what Candace had been trying to set up with the whole gay thing. Yeah. And, of course, it's choosing to prey on people's prejudices to make this guy, like, the big bad gay boogeyman. Yeah. And I think he was doing it to offset his disgusting client's actions. Like, oh, do you think it's bad that she's uh, having an incestuous affair? Well, this guy was having homosexual affairs. Yeah. You know? So he's just, like trying to throw like okay well maybe we feel less bad about this guy because he was also having an affairs and his were gay you know he's gay i know it's like guys sorry not the same thing as incest no not at all definitely not gross (laughs) yeah totally natural and normal thing and i feel really bad for roy because he got dragged into this and he was completely outed in this huge media case oh can you imagine horrible back then in the 60s yeah it's, I mean, I, I don't know what happened to him, but I hope he, you know, got away, you know? When the prosecution introduced their witnesses, Percy Foreman tore them all to shreds. As far as the fingerprint evidence at the scene and the getaway car, he got the technicians to all admit on the stand that they had no way of knowing when the prints were left there. And as a family friend, it was entirely possible that Mel had been in the Mossler's apartment or borrowed that exact car at some time before the murder. Because the car rental came from a Mossler, you know, company. Yep. They said it could he could have been in the car. He even did this thing at the trial where he like put his finger down on a piece of wood paneling in the courtroom. And he's like, do you think I left a fingerprint? And he's like, yes. You know, like the technician said yes. And he goes, yeah, so uh, how long will that be there? And he's like, well, I mean, it depends if somebody like cleans that exact spot. And he's like, well, if they don't. And he's like, it could be there forever. He was just being very dramatic and like really breaking it down for the jury. Yeah. And creating great reasonable doubt, obviously. The key. I mean, but it's it's also still so ridiculous. Like, Jack hated this guy. Why would he ever let him in his apartment? I know. know? Foreman also absolutely annihilated the three men who swore they had been offered money to take. 
<laughs> yeah, to take out Jacques. All three men had rap sheets and had done time, and Foreman attacked their credibility. For at least one of the guys, he was probably right. Uh, the man had testified that he had met Candace herself at a bar called the 24-Hour Club in Houston, and the defense could prove that no such club or bar existed in all of Houston or the surrounding areas. So he be definitely made it up to get less time, and it looks like the prosecution never vetted his story. So they had no response for why he said they met at a club that didn't exist. And there was no Yelp back then. <laughs> no, there's no way to look this up. Percy had hired um, private investigators to look up everybody's story, you know? Ugh. One of one of the men admitted on the stand that he was addicted to heroin, which was also something that Percy's team had dug up. And after prompting by foreman, he sheepishly copped to shooting up in his private area, which horrified the jury and female spec spectators. So I was like, wait, is he shooting up in his dick? What does private area mean? I didn't. I was thinking more of like a space, like spatially. Like his private area, like, but is he talking about his private area of his body? Yeah, that's what they were talking about. He said, like, his Percy was like, Where on your body do you shoot up? Because somehow he must have known. And the guy was like, Uh, I only shoot up in my privates. Yeah, surprise dick. <laughs> and so I guess the, the jury was all male. So they were all like, Ooh, like thinking about it. And the, the females in the audience were like, Oh, <laughs> I can't believe the jury was all male. So this is also interesting. At this point, women were allowed to serve on juries. They still, but, yeah. But women could get out of it because women were predominantly stay-at-home mothers. And so every jury summons had a clause for women to say they were primarily primary caretakers of children and they wanted to get out of serving versus men who got some sort of stipend, stipend from serving yep. because they were out of work. And so I'm sure that people just use this as an excuse to get out, or they mostly were stay-at-home moms who really couldn't do jury duty. So they were still, even though legally they were allowing women to do it, they were still discouraging them from doing it. Wow. Yep, that's what was going on in 1966, I think, was when this trial finally took place. Oh, yeah. So a number of the state's witnesses were, like, simply there, like I said, to testify to the uh, affair, you know? So Candace had bought Mel a mobile home trailer business to run, and a number of his employees, like, came forward to uh, testify about the affair, essentially. So Judge Schultz ruled that the state had the right to continue calling witnesses to establish the affair as motive for murder, and so it did. A number of Mel's trailer lot employees paraded to the stand, each testifying about conversations in which Powers discussed the money that Mel expected to receive when the old bastard is gone. Each of the men also had their own stories of Mel boasting about Candace's love of oral sex. Oh, One my of the God. men said, he told me that she loved to sit on his face. A collective gasp of shock arose from the spectators at such a graphic description of Candace's favorite sexual position. <laughs> Can you imagine these people just dying? Everyone oh had God. to have just turned beet red. I, I mean, I'm I bet some woman like swooned. Yeah. Like, oh. 
Speaking of swooning, during the ongoing testimony of her sexual hijinks, Candace did swoon and faint, but it was believed that she was pretending. <laughs> so she was excused from court proceedings for the entire afternoon and next day for an undefined illness. Oh my God, princess. Mm-hmm. They even attempted to have William Miesmer testify the poor kid had recently married and his father-in-law was a Methodist minister who deeply disapproved of his new son-in-law's involvement in such a sordid affair. Oh, and no. Yeah, so he desperately didn't want to testify. So an affidavit was allowed instead of him actually testifying in person, which discussed William's sexual relationship with Candace, but also way more damning was her insistence that he come to Miami and testify that he had proof that Jack was a homosexual, even though William did not believe that he was and had never in all of his years of employment seen any evidence to such. Oh, man. At the time of his affair with Candace, he was willing to perjure himself for her. But shortly after, he met his wife and began to live a more righteous and truthful life. He was deeply relieved that he hadn't gone through with the perjury. So crazy. She's just getting everyone in trouble, huh? Yeah. Get that magic snatch, man. The prosecution tried to enter in a nine-page love letter of a sexual nature that Mel had written Candace from prison, but the judge wouldn't allow it. The speculation was that the prude judge didn't want the smut read before the court. So our loss was the defense's gain, but I also feel like at this point, I think the judge was like, we know. Yeah. We got it. They were having sex. Please don't read this. We, we've got the picture. She likes sitting on his face. Color. We all know. Yeah. <laughs> we all know. Please stop with this testimony. After that, the state officially rested, and it was the defense's turn. They decided to not put either Mel or Candy on the stand. Mel was a hothead who would rub the jury the wrong way, and Candy had proven to be a loose cannon by yelling at witnesses whose testimony harmed their case. Oh, she would, like, God. literally stand up and be like, you're a liar, sir. You're a liar. And, like, the judge had to almost eject her from the courtroom because she would stand up and scream at the witnesses. <laughs> it's like, babe, you're not the lawyer. Like, yeah, you can't do that. She'd be like, objection. It's like, no, not your not your job. Perhaps the most important witness in the entire trial was a man who never testified. Remember poor Roy Wiseau? Yeah. The scapegoat. So Percy Foreman apparently paid for him and his wife to take an all-expenses-paid vacation to the Bahamas for the trial dates. By making sure he was absolutely unreachable during the trial, he could have the dramatic moment of calling a witness who never came. Is any of this legal? Oh, it's it's totally probably not. Yeah. I don't know if it's like, but is it by the letter illegal? You can send somebody on vacation. He apparently also got one of his like clerks or employees to do it. And put it under somebody else's name so nobody knew where this guy was. And then he could put a, a server, you know, like a process server, somebody who serves the subpoenas yeah, and, you know, the other legal stuff. Uh, he got somebody uh, to do – who does that to, like, come on the stand and be like, I couldn't find him. I don't know where he is. I, like, looked everywhere. He's, like, nowhere to be found. So he made sure he was out of town for this. And so he got this dramatic moment of he literally was like, and I call Roy Weissel. And then like everyone like turned and looked and he never came. Then he could essentially put this ghost of Roy on trial without the DA being able to cross-examine him. 
if he had been on on the stand and if they had actually like brought this evidence in really the da could have cross-examined and, and they would have found out like a the timelines didn't match up at all yeah. that he had no relationship to jock and that they could enter all this forensic evidence that would disprove it, but he wasn't actually ever there. So he could just spin this story. It would also make him look guilty like he was running away and not showing up at trial. Yeah. So it was like a perfect trifecta masterstroke, you know? No. He's diabolical. Yeah. So, like I said, none of the forensics matched up. There's absolutely no way this guy did it. But the jury seemed extremely interested in this no-showing alternate suspect. Oh, no. So they were buying it. Finally, the witnesses came to a close, and Percy Foreman delivered a five-hour-long closing statement. This guy can talk. I mean, don't worry, guys. I'm not going to read it. Could you imagine if I was like, and now I'll read for you in full. (laughs) This episode is going to be seven hours long. Can you even believe that, though? I I mean, I don't know. I don't know if I'd find that very persuasive. I'd be like, Jesus Christ, let's end this. Um, He reminded the jury that they – he reminded the jury that to convict either of the defendants, they must be satisfied beyond doubt that the prosecution's evidence had eliminated every other hypothesis of Jacques' death. He brought up Roy again and the dubious characters of the men who had testified against Mel and Candy. He said, gentlemen of the jury, the state seems to believe that we are trying a hugging and kissing case. We are trying these two people for first degree murder. There are lives at stake here. Please keep that in mind as you consider the testimony of the state's stellar group of witnesses. He apparently also talked about how they were not on trial for incest or adultery and that he had actually looked up what the incest laws and punishments were in Florida just in case they had been, which they were not. And apparently in Florida, in this county at the time, you could either get one year in like state pen for incest or 20 years in in the county jail for incest. And so he made some joke. He's like, I don't know what you're doing over here in your in your county jails or something that 20 years equals one year. And um, I guess everybody laughed. They thought it was very funny. So he was like. <laughs> really hamming it up and he was like making light of the incest in such a way and I think it was like brought up so many times that the shock value just diminished you know yeah the district attorney in his last statement appealed to the decency of the jury not to buy the smear campaign the defense had sold on the victim Jacques he also implored them to stand up for the victim and convict their killers after the closing statements yeah what are we doing here it's like Also, it's like what you're like laughing along with this guy. He's making light of this. He's making jokes. These people are wretched. And he's also saying all of these insanely negative things. They did have witnesses. The state had witnesses come up and say, there's literally no evidence he was gay. He didn't even know this guy. They had a forensic guy come up and be like, I don't think he could have done it. This other guy, like he definitely wasn't gay. They had all of his employees who knew him well and friends like testify to it. But he had just muddied the waters enough that the jury was confused. So after the closing statements, the judge reviewed the options available for the jury's deliberation. They could go not guilty, first-degree murder, which was punishable by death in the electric chair at the time. Or if the jury voted first-degree but mercy, they would be elopped. Remember, life without possibility of parole? Yeah, that's my fave. Um, 
we're going to call it L-whopping from now yeah. on. Second degree murder, which would be 20 years to life. Third degree murder, which was up to 20 years. Or manslaughter, which would be a $5,000 fine and somewhere between one and 20 years. So after two full days of deliberation, the jury was hopelessly deadlocked. They sent a note to the judge saying, with all due apologies, we, the members of the jury, find we cannot reach an agreement of either acquittal or conviction. The judge said basically, tough shit, get back in there and hack it out. Yeah. I'm not going to have a mistrial. Yeah. We've been doing this for two days. Like, sorry, guys, get back in there. Some 12 um, angry so men there- shit. Exactly. He was like, you, you just got to figure it yeah. out. The next morning, the jury finally decided on a verdict. Do you want to guess? I think, oh, God. I mean, I, like, just. It, it, could, it could be anything. I'll just tell you. <laughs> not guilty on Mel and not guilty on Candace. Completely not guilty. I was going to be pissed off about manslaughter. They got off Scott Bree. Oh, my God. Well, then how do we mm-hmm. find out the truth? I mean, I just – maybe I just presented it that way and so did the book. But I think – I mean, come on. His fingerprints, everything. There was also evidence that he had been at a bar a block away from uh, Jacques' apartment. The bartender testified. And he had taken one of those old school glass Coke bottles, like the really big ones, not the little ones, like a two liter, you know, or a one liter. And so they believe that was the murder weapon. The problem is they never found it. They never found the knife or the bottle. So basically they they were using the bartender as evidence that it was him because he positively identified him. And he said he took the bottle when he left. But then Percy Foreman like dug holes in that too, you know, being like, well, why didn't they find it? What? There's no weapon here you know what 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 did oj the glove don't fit yeah you must acquit baby so the courtroom exploded into a media circus and it especially exploded when the verdict was read and mel and candace embraced and kissed on the lips in front of the entire courtroom. oh my god did the judge literally like die right there the judge was so pissed apparently you know usually the judge thanks the jury for their service yeah. and dismisses them and he did not say thank you he was like you can leave now like he was so mad <laughs> oh my god I wonder how often that happens when the judge just completely knows that it just doesn't agree with the can jury. they and can they not override I thought they could override not in this case wow I don't really know what the rules are the wow. jury said later that while some members were still suspicious and did mostly believe that Mel was guilty and like he was the most likely suspect, none could admit that they were absolutely 100% positive beyond a reasonable doubt that he did it. And the other thing is that I think that they screwed up their case by like entering Candace into it too because absolutely no one thought Candace did it. So they think by tying the cases together, it might have blurred. Yeah. It, it blurred the lines. Like, maybe they would have gotten a conviction on just Mal, you know? Mm-hmm. The bombastic defense attorney from Houston had certainly done his job. That evening, the illicit lovers held a victory party at a luxury hotel and invited members of the press. A reporter noticed that Percy Foreman wasn't in attendance at the party and called his hotel to ask why. The old bear responded gruffly, I may represent these people, but I don't have to associate with them. <laughs> won't even have a drink with them won't even have a drink he apparently like she had other lawyers too they had like a team of course you know 
And apparently the other lawyers sat with them for a press conference and like drove them away and stuff. And he was like, peace out. I got my money. I got your conviction. I'm out of here. He like wanted nothing to do with them. So afterwards, Mel moved into Willow Wick with Candy after the acquittal, now openly sharing the master bedroom. Ew! Uh-huh. They didn't even try to hide it. The adopted children did end up attending the Swiss boarding school. Mel, with seed money from Jacques, now Candy's fortune, formed his own real estate development firm and developed a number of high-rise office towers all over Texas, Florida, and California. So the old dick became wildly successful. In December of 1967, Candace called reporters to make an announcement. Mel had given her a ring. She proudly Oh my god, I thought you were going to say baby. <laughs> no, oh god, that'd be <sighs> terrible. She proudly displayed a huge cluster of white and blue diamonds on that finger. And we actually, I, I found a picture of like that exact press opportunity. So we'll make sure to put that on the Instagram. When a reporter clarified that that meant the two were engaged, she said, why no, we have no plans to get married. So I don't know what, they, I guess she called all of the reporters there just to show off a fancy ring. Wow. Uh-huh. She really, really liked the attention. Um, also, there's no way that the two could get married, legally speaking. No. An unculate marriage between aunt and nephew was illegal in every state of the United States. Oh, my God. In 1969, when Mel was 27 and Candace had just turned 49, the couple finally split after years of rumors of infidelity, jealousy, and domestic abuse. So, apparently, he was sleeping with a ton of young women. Because he's 27 and she's 49. Yep. And she would, like, hire private investigators to, like, spy on him and stuff like that. And then they would get into these huge fights. And then either he actually did hurt her, which I wouldn't be surprised because he's a scumbag. Murderer. Or she would say that he hurt her because she was, like, trying to get attention. And, and she's she a liar. To, and she's a liar. So they're both terrible people. So yep. I'm not sure what was going on here. Um, and they they finally broke up. So wow. after the murder trial, yeah, yeah, they stayed together for two full years after the trial. Ugh. So after the murder trial, Jack's will was finally dealt with, and his four eldest daughters received ten percent of his residuary estate each. After the, um, yes, they got ten percent each. Good, 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 good. Okay. So after the tr- um after the trial, Candace formed a new business entity, Nationwide Securities Company. And each of her six children were given stakes in the new business. And so basically they got 10% each of everything that he had done. Yep. And then she cut them completely out of anything going forward. And made a new business for her kids. And made a complete new business that was – that umbrellaed all of his business stuff. But now only she and her children were the beneficiaries. And get this, through Smart's pluck and wise counsel, Candace ended up tripling the value of Jacques' business. So she actually did it. I mean, most of these cases, especially like the scheming trophy wife, you know, gets the business, she runs it into the ground. She tripled his business. Wow. Candace never paid any of her attorneys the balance of what she owed them. Which is maybe why she was doing so well in business because she was ripping people off. And ultimately, Percy Foreman had to bring her to court to collect. Of course, she lost. Like, you saw him in the courtroom. Are you really going to go up against him for some money? What an idiot. Um, And she was ordered to pay an additional $140,000, bringing the total paid to Mr. Foreman up to $250,000. 
So she ended up having to pay like 50 grand more than she would have if she had just paid. Oh, him. that's not that bad. Um, the, it's not that bad. The legal troubles didn't end there. In 1971, a 16-year-old Eddie Mosler, one of the adopted children, accidentally shot a 13-year-old boy named David Brown with a 38 caliber pistol. So the boy was the son of Candace's secretary, and I guess they were shooting guns, and it struck the child in the back, causing paralysis. Oh, no. So the Brown family filed a $1.75 million suit against the Mosslers, and we don't know how much it was settled for, but it was settled out of court for two two years later. So I hope that they a good chunk of change. During this period and not long after the split with Mel, 50-year-old Candace met and married 32-year-old Barnett Garrison. Her third marriage was most definitely not the charm, though, because handsome young Barnett would suffer permanent brain damage after a mysterious fall from Willow Wick's third floor balcony. He required round-the-clock care after his accidents and never recovered. His family remained convinced that Candace had attempted to kill him because he wanted to leave her. Whoa, and he was brain damaged, so could he not even talk? He was brain damaged, so he couldn't, he couldn't, he basically did get back some speech, but he could not remember anything that happened the day of the accident Holy at shit. all. Mm-hmm. In 1974, Candace filed for divorce, and it was approved by a judge in 1975. Garrison and his family were said to receive $1.65 million. Wow. Yeah, so that's good. I mean, in the 70s, $1.65. So, I mean, he had permanent brain damage. Yeah, his life's over. His life's over, but at least they were paid handsomely for it. Candace spent the last years of her life in court battling two of her adopted sons, Dan and Chris, over mismanagement of their trust funds and developing a terrible addiction to painkillers, tranquilizers, and sleeping pills. Sounds right. Mm-hmm. She was rich enough to have the, like, the Michael Jackson-type situation where she had a bunch of doctors on staff, where she could get whatever painkiller she wanted that, you know, she would, like, have somebody on staff to, like, pump her stomach when she overdosed, you know, and bring her back. Such a waste of, um, like, resources and... Yeah. Unfortunately or fortunately, depending on how you feel about people who get away with murder, she succumbed <laughs> to her addiction. <laughs> And died of drug overdose in a luxury suite in the Fountain Blue Hotel in Miami on October 26, 1976. She was 56 years old, though she was still telling people she was 49. Of course. Gotta shave those seven years off. Outrageously, she was laid to rest in the Arlington Cemetery right next to Jacques. Uh-huh. She requested to be buried next to her second husband, the one she murdered. Wow. Uh-huh. That's some balls. And yes, Melvin attended her funeral. In a 1977 civil trial, Rita, Candace's daughter, testified that she had been told by her mother that Wynne Rockefeller was her father. Mel ended up having a roller coaster of business success. Like, sometimes he was really up. Sometimes he was really down. He kind of, like, gambled with his investments. Okay. Um, he never married, and he was believed to have no children, so he had no official children. <laughs> he died at age 68 in 2010 of undetermined causes. Wow. And Percy Foreman went on to represent a number of high-profile cases, including James Earl Ray, the assassin of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. 
No way. Mm-hmm. He was his attorney who Ray pled guilty. So Good. there was no trial Good. for that. Yeah. He died on August 28th, 1988 at the age of 86. And I personally bet the devil welcomed his new attorney with welcome arms. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's top dog down there. He was like, he was like, my man. Yeah. <laughs> Good work. My man. <laughs> so that... Is it? That is the crazy, Jesse. crazy story what? of Candace Mossler. What a journey. Well, I'm really glad you like the story, Andy. And if you guys listening like the story, please give us five stars it's, and just let me know. It's really pretty awesome when people do. It makes we us really, really, appreciate really happy. <laughs> yes, we actually talk about it. Every time you guys leave a review, we like screenshot it and then like do a happy dance. Yeah. I swear to God. Yeah. Happy bi coastal <laughs> dance. Yes, we do. We do a Zoom dance. Um, all right, guys. Well, thanks for listening. We have some amazing cases coming up. And of course, if there's anything that you want me to talk about personally, and you want to listen to Andy react to, <laughs> uh, <laughs> send us a message on social media or send us an email at lovers at lovemurder.love. In closing, apparently the only way to get away with murder is to have lots and lots of money. Yeah, and incest. Guys, don't sleep with your nephew. Incest is not bad. No. Bad vibes. Yeah. <laughs> really bad. So don't do it. And as always, we want you all to stay safe out there and remember that we are all just one bad relationship away from getting murdered. Good night. <laughs> Good night. <laughs> Sleep tight. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank Bye you. Now.